Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are so glad to have you here. I am Sam Futrell, Virginia Council for Social Studies board member and host of this little podcast. How are all of you? Uh, If you're listening to this when it goes live on iTunes, we are getting close to the holiday season, first and foremost Thanksgiving, and it's a time of year that can bring a lot of joy to a lot of people, but it can also bring a lot of stress. And teachers especially, we are going through so much right now. I know Virginia, certain groups are going back to school entirely. Certain groups have a hybrid teaching model still, and some people are still totally virtual. So that in and of itself can cause so much stress. And I think on top of that with the holiday season, I just want to remind you all to be gentle with yourselves uh, during this time. So today's episode is the final segment of our two-part storytelling series, and my guests and I really dug in deep into not only how we can use stories to preserve, teach, analyze, and understand history, but also how history and storytelling can help our students understand themselves. I was so lucky to be joined on this episode by two remarkable people, Stephen Giannotti and Brendan Wolf. Stephen is a high school social studies teacher in Chesapeake, Virginia, and uses storytelling in all its forms in his classroom. He is such a dynamic teacher and seeks to build relationships with his students by connecting them through fun, thoughtful, and interactive projects, including, as you will hear in this episode, all kinds of dramatic play. Brendan is a writer and editor living in Charlottesville, Virginia with his daughter Beatrix. Virginia Council for Social Studies actually originally connected with Brendan through his work as an editor for Encyclopedia of Virginia. But in addition to that, he's also the author of Finding Bix, The Life and Afterlife of a Jazz Legend, and Mr. Jefferson's Telescope, A History of the University of Virginia in 100 Objects, He has also published essays in The Morning News, Colorado Review, and VQR. Brendan is a seeker of stories and teaches us in this episode how to find them wherever we and our students are. This episode was so special to me. I feel like this conversation really reaffirmed what I love about teaching, and it has truly made me want to prioritize storytelling in my classroom both as a form of consumption for my students as they learn, but also as a method of production for my students as they put out their own stories and they produce their own writing and uh, their own public speaking and just storytelling in any possible form. I hope that you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. So without further ado, Stephen Giannotti and Brennan Wolf.
All right, everyone, welcome to episode three of Content to Classroom. I am here with Stephen Giannotti and Brendan Wolf. Welcome to both of you. Um, let's just get started. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you come into teaching? Um, as we know, we've had you on at VCSS events for uh, a few months now. Um, keep bringing you back in. Uh, <laughs> So why are you interested in teaching um, and how did you come into teaching? Why are you interested in storytelling and dramatic play? Just tell us everything. Yeah, definitely, Sam. Well, it's good to be back. Happy to be contributing to our podcast. Uh, for teaching, the story is a little bit different for me. I was in college and I had no aspirations to be a teacher at first. I thought I would be a veterinarian while I was at the University of Virginia. Uh, and then I took a science class uh, introductory and I was like, nope, that's not going to be for me. <laughs> and I signed up for the Curry School of Education. I took the introductory class because I, I heard a lot of people saying great things and I just loved my instructor and I knew that it, this was going to be the profession for me. And I just dived right into my work at the University of Virginia. I was able to get my bachelor's, my master's. And then before you know it, I was teaching in a very strange setting though. I started online and that's been really great for now. <laughs> but I started full online and then I did a hybrid setting. And you know, to go to the question of how this relates to me getting into storytelling, dramatic play, I always remember having a teacher within my middle school experience who would dress up, uh, who would try and bring the content alive. So I wanted to emulate that for my students and really give history this cool spin. Because sometimes you go through the text and this is the facts of this period and you know, blah, 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 blah. But when you have this element for the students that they can see you're different coming in, it immediately gets their attention just coming right into your room. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I can't wait to talk to you more about just all of the ways that you bring dramatic play into the classroom. Um, and just for our listeners who don't know, uh, dramatic play is the act of students or teachers embodying a role or a perspective from history or modern day to better understand a topic. So we will definitely dive into that a little bit more. Uh, Brendan, what about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, you're an author, a writer, a storyteller of all trades. Um, how did you become involved in all of those things? Well, I have one, I wanted to be a writer since I was eight or nine. And I always loved history. My dad was a history teacher. And so I put those together when I was a little kid, I would sit at the dining room table and handwrite novels like about Valley Forge. I, I, I wrote, you know, when I say I wrote a novel about Valley Forge, I mean like I wrote like four or five pages. And I did a comic strip about D-Day and I drew Civil War soldiers and I was, it's a little embarrassing in retrospect, but I was, I was in a, a Civil War reenacting group when I was <laughs> like from like age 12 to 16 traveling all around the country and uh but the older I got the more 
you know, I wanted to sort of differentiate myself from my dad. And so I got away from history, but never got away from writing. So I was, I worked in journalism and publishing. And, and when I arrived in Virginia in 2007, I saw a job open uh, at Encyclopedia of Virginia, which was not even online yet, uh, just a going to be an online encyclopedia of Virginia history. And so I brought the the editing and publishing skills that they needed, but I didn't know the first thing about Virginia history, like just less than nothing. And uh, so, I mean, I was there for almost 12 years and it was an education. I mean, I did nothing but read about Virginia history for 12 years and it's a bottomless well. And it was just so much fun. And there's so many different ways to think about the material and different ways to present it publicly. It was just hugely fun for me. That's so funny that you had never entered into Virginia history at all before you got to Encyclopedia Virginia, because I just know I'm not from Virginia originally either. I'm from North Carolina. And when you come into Virginia, I mean, these people with their Virginia history, <laughs> I mean, they are diehard Virginia history. Katie Blomquist, our president, said to me, well, United States history is just Virginia history with a little bit extra. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I mean, maybe, but that is really amazing. Um, I'm, I'm glad for Encyclopedia Virginia that they were willing to branch out and let a non-Virginian into their space, right? Well, at that time, the Encyclopedia was run by a South Carolinian and yeah, there, and, and there was someone from California on staff. There weren't any Virginians on staff as it happened. So we've always kind of been a, a motley crew. Well, that's, that's really illuminating. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell any of my Virginia friends that story, but, <laughs> but that's, that's awesome. Um, so let's just get right down into it. Uh, Steven, can you tell us a little bit about how you have used storytelling and dramatic play in your classroom? That's kind of our main theme today. Um, what do you do to bring these things in um, and how is it helpful to you in general? Yeah, for sure. I use it a lot before COVID, you know, that time where we could actually do uh, those peer-to-peer workshops. You could have kids interact and, oh man, hopefully we get back one day. But something I did before we had the pandemic, I put on my own salon uh, that they would do during the enlightenment of how they would get thinkers together. And I, I really wanted my students to experience that because every time I've taught it, whether it's just at you know your, your regular level or your more advanced level for your students, uh, it's typically glossed over. Okay, well, here's this person, there's that person, and it, it's just so uninteresting for them. And they struggle to remember the names or why it's significant for the period. Uh, and to change that up, I assigned each of my students and partners uh, a thinker of the time. And the assignment was they had to learn about 
their character as we were coming to the supposed salon that we were having in my classroom. And I encourage the students to dress up. Yeah, high schoolers, though, they, it's all about their image. So some of them were not into that. I had a few, which I loved. But for myself, I had, you know, the full getup. I've had my wig, my awesome outfit. I was just ready to go. Even my shoe buckles. I was feeling it. And as I was walking in the day, because I brought you know, food for the salon, because uh, during it, they would be able to go and you know, get the cheese. And we had some little drinks. Uh, of course, I didn't have coffee uh, because I couldn't install all of my like, you know, warmer machines uh, to have that coffee. But you know, we had juices. We thought we were pretty fancy. Uh, but as I was coming into the school, I literally had just all of the kids look at me like, what? Who is this guy? And I had like kids follow me. The funniest thing after doing this project, I have kids even to this day, they just come by my room like, oh, it's Mr. Giannotti. I'll look at them and be like, have I had you as a student? I don't think so. And they're like, oh, no, no, you're the guy that dresses up. So that's what I've become known as for my school. I've used it in other angles as well. I dressed up as Napoleon. We did a whole trial for Napoleon. But I think that experience really stuck with my kids going back to the salon. They loved the experience. Of course, they loved the food. Uh, you feed high schoolers and they're your best friend for life. <laughs> so looking back, it's something that I just couldn't imagine not doing as a social studies teacher. It brings the content alive, it gets the kids interested, and it pushes them to that higher level of thinking that we so desperately want. We want to move beyond just, okay, well, it's this person and they did this achievement to, well, what were they really thinking about? Why was this significant? How do we still see these thought processes, uh, processes playing out even to this day? Steven, you are going to die because let me tell you, I have also done an enlightenment salon in my class. <laughs> not to that level, I will say. I, I, you know, I did not, I did not personally dress up. The kids did not dress up, but we did a salon where we brought in. I actually did do coffee. Okay, that doesn't mean that I'm better than you. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> the capacity. Um, but we did do coffee. We did decaf because, you know, they're in seventh grade and Lord knows they don't need any more um, energy. But um, but we did decaf coffee. We did tea um, and we had biscuits every day, like a different kind of biscuit from that time period. It was so much fun. I swear that kids actually remember more things when there's food involved. Um, I don't know if there's like a scientific study that has any data on that, but I am 99% sure that that is correct. Um, but no, it really does. And I love that you had them embody the different philosophers because even though I think the enlightenment is fascinating and, you know, all of that transition of thought, especially women in the enlightenment, you know, kind of rising uh, up in terms of social status and being allowed to come into salons with men, especially in France and things like that. I mean, it's such a revolutionary time, 
But to students, they don't really see it that way for the most part. But to have them embody a philosopher, it becomes so much more tangible. It becomes so much more um, personified for them. And it becomes something that they can really hold on to. So, I mean, beyond just that fact, I mean, what else do you think are the benefits to students when they are able to do these things? How does that impact their learning? Well, I think in addition to just content, social emotional learning, that kids have just this fun memory of your class. And that's easy to overlook as I think a high school teacher, okay, you need to know this. There's the SOL test. Got to teach it to the test. Test, test, test. But for kids just to think back to that and get a smile and it opens up more possibilities for those relationships. Kids will come to you. I've had, you know, a lot of my students, but before the pandemic, I was able to do this for the fall semester of 2019. They would stop by my room and it just, they always would want to see how I was doing. Uh, and I think that's an additional benefit on top of just knowing the information, being able to get to the higher level thinking, but connecting with your students deeper and showing them that you're willing to go out there on a limb to dress up, to be the craziest person within the room, but also even the school sometimes, because you have to be fearless as you're walking in. Because I tell you that the judgment, I could just, I could feel it as I was coming into the school with my little wagon of all of our supplies for the salon. But yeah, I kept with it. And now, as I was saying, all the kids stop by and they just, that's what I've been known for. Of, oh, I want to take this class. This guy dresses up. He, I want to know what he's going to be at tomorrow or maybe in a week. Yeah. And I think that I, I do know for sure that kids um, and students will learn more effectively when they're in a comfortable environment. And so if you're willing to be vulnerable and put yourself out there, it encourages them to do the same. And if not to do the same, if they can't have that reciprocity, then they're at least going to respect you for trying, you know? And, and it's also like such a good example to high schoolers, especially, um, but even to, you know, middle schoolers who I teach. I mean, it's good to show them that you just don't care, you know? Like, and that who you, like, that it's okay to not take yourself so seriously, you know? Um, and I do think that that's huge. That social emotional component uh, is really, really important. Um, so Brendan, you are obviously an avid storyteller, okay? Both as a writer and the host of Not Even Past. Uh, now you're dabbling into communications in all its forms. So what do you think draws you to stories as a means of sharing what's happened in history um, and even beyond just history? I've been trying to figure that out myself for a long time. <laughs> uh, I think I'm, I'm a natural born storyteller because both my parents were virtuoso storytellers. So I've been around stories my whole life. But when it comes to history, uh, and I'm just in awe, Stephen, of, of what you're doing, and like, there's no way I would have the guts to do that. There's no way I could put myself out there like that. 
um, which is why I'm not a teacher. Uh, but as a, as a writer, you know, I'm just thinking like, and, and this is something you guys as, as teachers don't need to be told, but I think about it all the time that, that facts are just facts, you know, by themselves, they don't mean anything. And you can put them together into an argument. I remember way back in grad school reading James Lowen's book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and the idea of, you know, what they might call teaching to the controversy, um, or really just teaching that, that history is a series of arguments that is constantly being revised, it's not settled. Um, that's fine, but to, to me, it's, you can also just tell a story. And a story is a kind of argument in the same way that you pull different facts out of your universe of knowledge and, and assemble them in order to um, argue X, Y, or Z. You do the same thing with a story. You manipulate the story in order to decide what's important, what the point of view is, where the beginning, middle, and end is. And to the extent that stories are a kind of argument, they bring meaning to all these facts. They help us understand and make sense of the world. They, they connect us to people, um, you know, in the same way that, Stephen, you're, you're dressing up and having a salon and, and sort of embodying a kind of person and in a time and place, a, a story, because stories focus on people in times and places, they're, they're just a different way of connecting. And but I've been thinking a lot about how they, they do even more than that. Um, stories create community. Um, you know, so much of what's been going on in our nation and our uh, state, and certainly in, in Charlottesville, is thinking about stuff like the monuments and what do they mean and what's underpinning that meaning are stories that have been told for you know 150 60 years a series of stories that explain what the civil war meant what you know how we got there and how to make sense of the post-civil war period and those stories have only begun in the last 20, 30 years to, to slowly break down and make room for new stories uh, told by people who didn't necessarily have a place in the old stories. And so uh, I've, I've thought that Charlottesville, in order to heal the wounds that have come from everything from its own history of, of white supremacy um, and segregation, uh, the violence that, that happened around the, the statues in 2017, um, and, and just the, the, you know, the, the racial unrest that's, that's everywhere. I think in order to come to terms with all that, we really need to develop new stories that help us bring in more uh, people 
and make sense of more experiences, people who were erased from the old stories. And so uh, they, they, these kinds of stories just, they, they, they play lots of different kinds of, of roles that I think are really critical. You said so many things there that I want to unpack that were so good. Um, I, I totally agree that stories, you know, can create community. They can also divide communities, right? Um, and I liked what you said about how stories are basically our own rationalizations of the world around us, right? Like they are our interpretation, but they're also more than anything, the way that we are trying to make sense of the world. And, and because of that, it's so interesting. And I don't know if there's even a question in here um, or if you just want to comment back on it, but I just think it's really interesting right now how we're dealing a lot with the concept of truth in the media um, and the idea that facts that maybe don't exist, you know, <laughs> and how that affects the stories that are being told about our time right now. I mean, even with like the pandemic and things like that that are going on, it seems like stories are being crafted all around us and all the time. And because of that, it, it really can impact not only our perception of our world, but our reality, like day to day. I don't know if there's even a question or even a comment in there, but I don't know, a lot of good things to think about. I think you're right that there's a kind of um, feedback loop with, with stories. They both reflect uh, back to us and they help create the reality. Um, I've seen that and, and written about that for a long time. And so uh, part of the, the urgency of creating new stories is to reflect a kind of new world that we live in, um, but also to help create that world at the same time. If you talk about the lost cause as uh, a kind of story and or a series of stories, um, and, and just a, a larger way of, of understanding history in the world. Um, that story was, you know, told in various ways, but then it also had such a huge impact on the world over time. And so it, it really created uh, a world um, that was independent of the world that it was describing in a way, you know, that the world is very different um, with those stories than it would have been without. And so um, coming up with, with new stories and elevating new voices is a way of, of, you know, creating a better world. But I think that storytelling and just narrative, if, if you want to sort of become less big picture about it. Um, one of the things I've noticed that's interesting because sometimes when I talk about stories, it, it feels kind of loosey goosey and, and I, I don't know, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about stories and, and in the classroom? And I've noticed that um, 
while I was at Encyclopedia of Virginia, I spent a lot of time reading textbooks just out of interest to know how stuff was being taught. And one of the things that I noticed was textbooks shying away from stories. And to me, that was unexpected. You know, if anything, I expected them to tell stories in a way that maybe overly simplified stuff or, um, you know, created a sense of narrative that doesn't exist in the real world. But instead, what I found is that you would get, you know, a scene here or a couple of facts here and a scene there and a couple of facts there, and then something else here, and there was nothing to connect them. And so it, it ends up being incoherent. An example that I remember um, was a, a textbook that was talking about Jamestown and, it, and, you know, it's following the state standards. And the state standards say you have to talk about Pocahontas and how she helped the, um, the Jamestown settlers by bringing them food. So it dutifully uh, gives you that scene. And then a page or two later, is talking about the starving time when the English settlers had no food. And I've always thought that kids are smart enough to be like, wait, where was Pocahontas when it was really going down during the starving time? How come nobody was helping them then? And there are obvious reasons, but in order to explain those reasons, you have to tell a story that connects the events. And if you start identifying those holes, you can see things that the textbook writers were worried about talking about, which was generally violence. Um, they didn't, they wanted to show um, assistance between the Indians or cooperation between the Indians and the English, and they didn't want to show violence. But violence was the only way you could make sense of any of it. And it seems to me that if you want students to understand what you're teaching them, then it has to come in the, in the foundation of some kind of story that connects things to each other so that their brains, and this is not just students, it's all of us, can, can make those connections ourselves. And then we can walk away and a day or two later, remember the story in a way that maybe we don't remember the date or all the names, but we remember how that story fits because our brains are all, um, you know, wired to understand how stories work. What kind of stories were your favorite to study and share? Um, stories that elevated voices and perspectives that you didn't find, you know, um, you know, on the highway markers or on the statues or in the textbooks. So one of the last big sections of content that I worked on um, before I left was on slavery. And so we created a whole, um, we, we spent a ton of time transcribing slave narratives. 
and um, put them link to them all from a from a page but just spending time with those voices when they are so erased because of how slavery worked um, was I mean the the stories uh, were amazing um, but the the story that I was obsessed with at um, Encyclopedia of Virginia I first read about when I was um, doing work around Jamestown and it was uh, a Virginia Indian who was called Pocky Caneo and uh, he was picked up by a Spanish ship in 1561 on the James River and so this was you know almost 50 years before Jamestown and they took him to Spain he met King Philip II of Spain then he went to Mexico, then he went back up to the Chesapeake Bay, then back to Spain, then to Cuba, and then finally, nine years later, after having spent four years with Dominicans, four years with Jesuits, having almost certainly learned uh, Spanish and Latin and maybe even um, the indigenous language in Mexico City, he comes back to Virginia and lands with a group of Jesuits and they set up a mission. They, they land in September and they set up a mission and proceed to just slowly starve. They have no way of feeding themselves and the Indians weren't interested or able to feed them. And in February, they were all killed, possibly by Paki Caneo himself, although the only uh, witness to that was a young Spanish altar boy who survived and assimilated with the Indians until the Spanish came back. And so everything we know about what happened um, at the mission comes from the altar boy to another Jesuit out to the rest of the world. And this story, I think I'm obsessed with this story because it takes this trope of from the age of exploration, which is Europeans coming to America and seeing this like crazy world that, you know, blows their minds and they don't know uh, what it means. It turns it around and takes uh, a Virginia Indian and puts him in a crazy world that he doesn't know what it means and he has to adapt and he's traveling all around the world at a time which just couldn't have been more fascinating and then you know the way it ends is both dramatic but also ambiguous because it's not really clear what happened um, some historians argue that maybe maybe the the jesuits just starved to death and the 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 Jesuit who interviewed that altar boy was someone who had in a fit of pique not gone on the mission himself um, and maybe he had an interest in suggesting that Paki Caneo couldn't have been trusted and was just you know the kind of um, Indian you would expect and the Jesuits also had an interest in being martyrs 
not, you know, in a certain kind of martyr and not the kind of martyr who just slowly starves to death, but the kind of martyr who is sort of valiantly struck down. So it, it, to me, it's really interesting. And I, I'm actually, I've been trying to write about it for like 10 years. So who ended up having the record of the story? Maybe I missed that when you just said it, but who, who ended up like recording that, all of that? There are lots of, so I, I'll tell this story, like, you know, maybe at VCSS, like in a hotel bar or something. And it's always the first question is, is how do you know this? <laughs> and to me, that's, it's so fun and so interesting because there's all these different kinds of sources. For instance, there, there are records from that Spanish ship that picked up Paki Caneo in the first place. And we know Paki Caneo's name because when that Spanish ship landed uh, back in Spain and they went to Seville, which is where the headquarters is for all everything that was going on in North America, they had to sort of check in and do their expense reports. And the captain was trying to get money to buy Paki Caneo some decent clothes so he could take him to meet the king. And so the bureaucrats wrote his name down. And we have that record uh, on Encyclopedia of Virginia. Um, you, you can look at that, at that page and you can see Paki Caneo written out. You've got letters from the Dominican uh, friars in Mexico City uh, while Paki Caneo was there. You have um, a letter that was written by two of the Jesuit missionaries the day they landed in Virginia in 1570. And they, they gave that letter to the guy who was piloting the ship who was going to take it back to Cuba. And it was a letter to their boss. And so that letter exists. And then everything after the mission, it started with an interview that a Jesuit did with this altar boy. And then after that, just a million and one people told this story, um, sometimes drawing on real sources, sometimes just stuff they'd heard, sometimes just making it up out of whole cloth. And, and so the, the story of Paki Caneo just um, gets bigger and bigger and, and less and less tethered to fact over, you know, the next couple hundred years. Isn't it amazing to think when you were just saying that, one of the things I was thinking of is people telling this story, you know, over and over again and, you know, maybe borrowing facts here and there, and then you're telling it right now. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's, uh, it's very meta in a way to to think about these things, you know. Well, I'm trying to write. I'm trying to write a book, and the book starts with me telling this story, like I'm just telling it to you, only to someone in a bar. Like I just have have done that so many times, where I have a few beers. I'm like, you got to hear this, especially if there are social studies teachers around. And so, the story begins with me telling the story and and so that that meta part is part of the point because this story exists on the level of story you know it's such a perfect story you can break it into three acts you can extract all kinds of different meanings out of it 
And that's what people have been doing with Don Luis, which was his Spanish name, um, for hundreds of years. Yeah, and I love that it also draws on a lot of different sources, as you said. You know, this has become sort of an oral tradition that's been passed down. Um, but at the same time, you're drawing on letters that were on ships. And, and even as you're saying that, too, I'm thinking about, like, you know, emails that get lost in our files. And I'm like, man, these Spaniards were taking letters across the Atlantic, and I can't even get someone to respond to this email. Um, but it's pretty... <laughs> it's pretty amazing how people are able to, you know, put these things together. And I think that that's a skill that is really transferable to the classroom. And so Stephen, I'm sort of wondering for you, like, how do you use storytelling in your classroom? And is that a skill that is valuable for students right now in, you know, 2020, you know, we're, we're entering into this new decade this year and all of this other stuff is going on. So is it still valuable? And if so, how? Oh, definitely. And I just wanted to say, Brendan, as you were telling that story, I was like, Oh, go on. I want to know more. <laughs> Cause I was just there, just eager to listen, eager to get more details. That was fantastic. But for the classroom, and I really enjoyed what you guys were saying earlier there. When, when we think about the curriculum, and this is where it gets a little bit political, our curriculum for Virginia, it advances this linear narrative of what's happened in history. And we leave out all of those voices. And it's so detrimental to our students, even more now than ever before, given the climate of 2020. And you know, something I try to do with my students is give them th those sources of, you know, people who were there, but they had a different vantage point. How did they see the event in question? And I've used resources such as, uh, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, A Different Mirror for Young People by uh, Ronald Takaki. And I think it's a great, you know, book that is approachable with your students. It has a lot of documents thinking about the different groups that just make up the United States. If we're thinking about racial groups, ethnic groups, and that gives you that full picture of what's happening, that it's never just as simple as, oh yeah, that it was Jamestown, and then there were settlers, and there were Indians, and that's that. There are so many other players in the story, and I always am just feeling guilty as the social studies teacher of like, oh, I want to prioritize that. But the test says, no, it doesn't have that off there. <laughs> so you're in this dilemma of what do you do? And the way I bridge that gap is I try and introduce as much as I can as I go throughout a unit of giving those different voices and in, even tying it back to the salon, as you were talking about, Sam, I had the leader of the salon be Madame Joffrin for one group to show students that women were very influential in this time period. Uh, they would invite these thinkers, these philosophers, and be involved in the conversations, trying to have you know, that elevation of the other sex in, in a time where it was definitely male-dominated. Yeah, I think that everything that you're saying is really important, especially like you said, that there is so much politicization of our curriculum. Um, 
one of the things that we talk about in our, in my geography class, uh, there's this article uh, written by Aaron David Miller uh, a few years ago called How Geography Explains the United States. And it just talks about how um, the fact that America is so ambivalent in everything that we do, you know, we're constantly going back and forth in all of these things, um, particularly in our politics, because we have elections all the time, you know, <laughs> and so we can have people who have totally different leanings shaping the curriculum that people are learning in the United States. And because of that, I mean, you would hope that facts are being leaned on um, and that that is, you know, what is being utilized most in our classrooms. But at the same time, like you said, things get prioritized, you know, and then they get prioritized by teachers afterwards because there are certain things that we have to hit in order to meet our test scores and things like that. Um, and so things do get lost in the cracks, right? So Stephen, I'll just follow up with you. I mean, what do you feel are the most important kind of people groups right now that we can be highlighting in our classroom through storytelling um, and maybe what's a appropriate way to do that? I, this is kind of a diversion question. So if you don't have an answer, it's totally okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, and it's something I want to point out too. We're focusing a lot on the United States, but I think this mm -hmm. is a problem that every country experiences. I mean, you look at Israel and Palestine, for example, and collective memory there of how you have your younger generations uh, of Israeli, they, they don't realize what happened in 1948. They don't have the full perspective. And you have to you know, take off you know, the dust there of, oh, well, th these were the facts. This is what happened to Palestinian villages. Or even going back uh, further in history, thinking about World War II for the Chinese, the Japanese, of how even to this day, very controversial when we think about atrocities that were committed and how you'll see Japanese officials in the government that, that don't want to talk about that. You don't want to own up to the reality. So while we're leaning towards the United States right now, I think this is a problem everywhere. But particularly for us, I would definitely say African-Americans, women, given, you know, these last two years that we're seeing all of the negative consequences of this linear narrative of, you know, we focus on, <laughs> and I, this just sounds bad, this is the way I say it, all these you know, dead white guys <laughs> who were in our history for our government, uh, famous things they did, but what about those marginalized voices? How did they contribute to the country? Because sometimes I would make the argument they did just as much, if not more. The people that were on the ground at our grassroots, getting the country through these turbulent time periods. So what I think is important for students is you try and you show those voices and it can be difficult because people are so charged now that they will immediately, and I don't know if this has happened to you, Sam, just in the classroom, you have a few students that immediately want to push back of no. Uh, and that could be the political socialization from their family, you know, the consequence of you know, collective memory, going back to what Brendan said with the lost cause. Uh, you know, that's just been in their family and, and you've got to break down those barriers. And, and it, it is not an easy thing to do uh, by any means. 
We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey everybody, we want to give you money. The Virginia Council for the Social Studies proudly presents many grant opportunities in the name of Lorraine Stewart, a committed patron of social studies. Available in increments of $250, the Lorraine Stewart mini grants are periodically awarded to VCSS member social studies teachers at grade levels K through 12 to develop, plan, implement, and evaluate innovative instructional strategies. Apply today on the VCSS website. If you're listening to this episode before November 19th, 2020, you are in luck because you still have time to register for the VCSS November Scholars Hour. This month, our panel of experts will be discussing how to include, celebrate, and incorporate American Indian histories and cultures into the social studies classroom beyond the scope of Thanksgiving. This is a free event and you can earn recertification points for attending. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. So register today using the link in the show notes or visit us on Facebook or Instagram for more details. Now back to the show. I I mean, it's just when we get into these conversations, I think this is really my goal as an educator. I want my students to get to this level. And it's difficult because we're talking about storytelling, but we've got to teach students not only these stories, why they're important, but also how do you analyze a story? Because that is extremely difficult for students that that they get this text. And if they don't check out after the first paragraph, because maybe the language is too hard for them, they've already hit a barrier, uh, they'll get to the end and they'll give you a summary, but they don't know how to pick apart the details of, or how does this relate to the larger topic of study? And that's something I try and do with my students of giving them those skills of, we start with the fundamentals. Okay, well, what is the main idea? How how do we support that? What is this person's vantage point? Can we trust this person? Uh, What was their level of expertise? And I think as students just build on those fundamental skills, then they're able to get a better idea of, well, how do I interpret a story? And then also, how do I know how to place stories in relation uh, to those that I encounter? Because you might get your students and just using our example of the lost cause again, they look at examples coming from maybe the South from, families that they had, uh, you know, people in the Confederacy, and that they don't really see that those stories are at a different level than the groups maybe that were marginalized, or well, what are they saying? What What is the larger point behind all of this? That it's easy to get lost in the weeds as you hear more voices. When I was in grad school, and I was uh, I got a master's degree in creative writing, but part of what I had to do was uh, teach a course called Rhetoric, which is the only course at the University of Iowa, at least then, and when I was an undergrad as well, that every student at the university had to take. And so every last kind of kid came through the classroom and they would would give you rhetoric to teach with a uh, minimum of preparation or training. (laughs) So I was a grad student and therefore I was a teacher. And so I was getting ready to teach rhetoric and it occurred to me to ask, what is rhetoric? Because I had only rarely 
encountered that word in my life. And I don't remember how I came upon this definition, but it's just a kind of communication in a certain time and a certain place for a certain audience. And thinking about stories as a kind of rhetoric um, can be an entry point sometimes for students thinking about the lost cause again. Um, you know, that's a, that's a story that has a million variation been told a million times. But if you go back to the creation of the lost cause narrative, thinking about who's telling that story, when are they telling that story, where are they telling it and to whom, you know, what's the point of it? What do they want to accomplish uh, by telling that story? That can be a way of getting into thinking analytically about it because I imagine that we all think about or can easily think about a telling stories and doing it for a reason. You know, I think of myself again, again in the sort of dark, you know, bar with a couple of drinks telling the Pocky Caneo story. Am I telling that just because I'm super excited and I want the world to know it? Am I telling it because I want to impress somebody, you know, with that story or that I'm flirting with somebody and they, they might think that that's really cool, whatever. There are, there are, there are reasons, you know, and then there are ways that you, that you tell the story to accomplish those reasons. Man, both of everything that you guys are saying is just really resonating with me. It's really hard to not just like grip onto things and want to keep breaking them down even more. Um, and one of the things that you said just now, Brendan, that really resonated with me was just talking a lot about intention behind stories and and the idea that statues, it's very much in the news right now, obviously, uh, this whole summer, and me being in Richmond, it is very, you know, right there in my community. I drive by the pillars of the statues every day. Um, and so those, those figurines, those, uh, those statues as stories in and of themselves sort of connects to something that you've been doing for a while now, which is object history. Um, so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. You have a book uh, called, and please correct me if I say this wrong, Mr. Jefferson's Telescope, A History of the University of Virginia in 100 Objects. Uh, and you sort of dive into 100 different objects as is in the name uh, and tell the story of the University of Virginia. Uh, through these objects, which is totally fascinating to me. Um, I find object history really, really interesting uh, for so many different reasons. But I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that book. And I, I also am just really curious to know how you chose the 100 objects and if you got to actually like be in the room with the objects and everything like that. <laughs> it was such a weird experience. Um, so much of this book, both in terms of how it played out on the page, but how I came to write it was just um, somewhat arbitrary and just like the experience was created out of the constraints 
put on that from the beginning. So the biggest constraint was that I had very, very little time to write the book. I, uh, so I signed a contract to write the book at like the beginning of September. And I had to turn the book in at the end of February. This was back 2016 to 2017. And so that was, and I, so I owed the press 50,000 words in that time. And, and that was very intense. And first I had to come up with a hundred objects. The idea of the book was based on a magazine article that was in uh, UVA alumni magazine where a summer or two before they had done a feature on 50 objects and they'd written like a hundred words on each object. And so the press wanted me to expand it to a hundred and write 500 words. And so based on not having much time without really even looking at the 50 objects, I just said, we're definitely going to take those 50 objects. And now I just need 50 more. And so I just asked, anybody who knew anything about UVA history, because as it happens, I didn't know anything about UVA history. Um, you know, what are some good objects? And so I got a few that way, but I wouldn't say a ton, but I ended up at UVA Special Collections and I was talking to their curator, uh, Edward Gaynor, and he just went into his office. He just kicked back in his chair and he just started rattling off objects that were in the collection that he thought would be interesting. And so I'm furiously writing them down, sometimes not even knowing what these objects were. He's just saying, you know, something like cartoon about the first reunion. Okay, <laughs> so I wrote that down. And, um, and when I got to 100, I stopped. And then I made a decision Here's the, the, the second constraint or the, the second decision I made that affected how the book turned out. I decided to put these objects in chronological order. So a bunch of objects that I barely have any idea what they are and I just lined them up one to a hundred based on uh, when they were created. And then I just started researching them one after the other. So I would write 500 words about the first object and then I would go to the second object and I had, you know, didn't know much about it, but I would write 500 words on that. And what happened is you put these objects together, things that I don't really know that much about, and they just started to spark off of each other based on you know, the, the arbitrary decision to put them in that particular order. I could have just, you know, thrown them in the air and written about them however they landed. And I think it would have been a completely different story for obvious reasons. But I think that, you know, this, the, the book started to develop characters based on the kind of research I was doing and um, kind of little motifs uh, based on things that I'd noticed in one object that would come back later. And it was just a, a completely fascinating way to tell a story. Um, in fact, I remember when it was done, having lunch with a historian friend of mine, and I was 
telling her just what I told you, you know, just really enthusiastically talking about what that experience had been like. And I said, it occurs to me, I could do that about my own life. You could just take a bunch of objects from your own life, put them together and see what happens as you go from one object to the next. What does that object um, provoke in you? And it's going to provoke something different in somebody else. But what is it provoking you? And then when you put another object next to it, I mean this figuratively in the book, what does that do to both the objects? You know, because I feel like it, it changes both of them and begins to build a story that way. So I actually did that this summer. I wrote a whole memoir in objects. It wasn't 100. It was like, I don't know. 40 or something, but it was amazing. You just, just, you just don't know where it's going to go. But you asked about whether I got to spend time with objects and, and yes, I did. And um, a, a photographer friend of mine, we hired to take photos of objects that were at special collections. And so um, she and I went there and they pulled out objects and she photographed them. And one of the objects was a, a burnt cross that had been put on the lawn of the wife of a UVA professor in the 1950s because she supported uh, integration. And this uh, burning cross, she saved. And at first, she was completely panicked and freaked out about the experience as, as anyone would be, I think. And then over time, she began to sort of own it. And she put that cross on her wall in her house and she wrote a memoir and put a picture of it on the front of that memoir and now it's in UVA special collections but we had an exhibit at UVA um, that was based on the book so it was the largest exhibit that they'd ever done at special collections and they gathered up all 100 objects borrowed them from different places and um, uh, you know, cleaned and fixed up things. And they brought out that, uh, they brought out that cross and they put it in this big case and they hung it on the wall. And the exhibit was supposed to open on August 14th, which was a Monday of 2017. And so what had happened two days earlier than that was uh, August 12th, 2017, when there was the violence downtown and there was the tiki torches on the lawn the night before. And so they put off the opening of the exhibit, but then they also, and I was a part of this, had this really intense debate and discussion, both within the library and with people outside the library uh, about whether to display the cross. And they came up with a bunch of different ideas. Um, it had been against a white background so that you could better see it. And then they thought, well, what if we, and they had placed it in a way in the exhibit so you would see it right when you came through the door. So they decided to move it and put it against a dark background in the case so you would have trouble seeing it. But then they decided that they just 
wouldn't display it at all, but they kept the case and they wrote a long sort of interpretive explanation of what they were thinking about. Um, but objects, the meanings of them are totally unstable. You know, they're, they're completely dependent on who's looking at it, where they are, what's going on at that moment, you know, it, it, and that, that makes it really interesting. And it also means that, you know, your story is, is sort of out of date almost as soon as you've told it. I'm gonna say I've used objects. I mean, sometimes we just can't know the purpose of an object. I think about it when I teach the first unit in world history of prehistory that we have these artifacts and we're looking at them and what do you think they use them for? It's all speculative. And that leads to what you were send, uh, saying, Brendan, of you take the object out of context and you have just an entirely new story from the start. And sometimes that can be a fun process. Like for what I do with, with my kids, I'm blessed that one of my teachers at my school, she had all of these artifacts and she just you know, dumped them into my classroom. And I was like, yes, I'll, I'll take anything you could give me as a starting teacher. Uh, and the kids love to really think about what we're saying with an object, to dissect it, to hold it. Um, it can be good from that aspect, but definitely you want to be careful as well of the meaning of where it was at this certain time, what it was used for, and how we should remember that context. Yeah, I'm interested, Stephen, um, just talking about using objects and artifacts in the classroom. Have you been able to do anything with that in our sort of socially distanced world that we're in right now? So I actually, going back to that example I just brought up with the uh, artifacts from prehistory, I had that on my uh, you know, Zoom meeting uh, of you know, just taking uh, mortar and pestle and grinding that up uh, in the meeting. And the kids could see as I was doing that. And then I held up other artifacts just on the camera. And we had you know, discussions, of course, in the chat for the first week, because everybody was scared to get on the mic of, oh, gosh, I don't know if I want to talk on the Zoom session. Uh, but they really like that. And I think it sets the tone of your class. The sooner you can do that, of I want your view. I I want what you're thinking to help guide our learning for the class. So that's just something I did at the beginning. I try and bring in the primary sources too, whether it's maybe just visuals that, that you'll have a poster that you're thinking of from World War II, what would have been displayed at a grocery store uh, rather than our current day of social media that you might have that tweet or Instagram photo that they go to. But th those are just some examples that I've been using. It's a little harder, of course, because I can't just like magically transport the object through the Zoom session. <laughs> I wish that, you know, maybe one day we'll have that technology. But uh, it, with the kids being back in the building, I, I want to try and do it safely. But it's just so hard still with objects uh, and they don't get the full experience. Yeah, I think um, there's a website and it's escaping my mind right now. I was trying to look it up uh, while 
uh, we were talking just now, but that the Virginia Museum of History and Culture uses a lot. And basically, it will give you a 360 view of the object. You can interact with the object. You can zoom in, zoom out, look at the markings, analyze it. Uh, and that is really helpful. And um, even though I can't remember the name of it right now, I will link it in the show notes. We're sort of getting closer to the end here. And this is a question, uh, Brendan, that Honestly, it is mostly to answer my own curiosity. And Stephen, you can jump in if you've ever done any work with this. Uh, but we have a lot of VCSS members who teach geography. And a lot of them feel a little left out because they don't teach history exclusively. Um, and I teach geography, but in the context of modern world history. So it's human geography. Um, and so one of the aspects of human geography that I explore with my eighth graders is emotional geography, which is really enjoyable. It's this idea that humans relate to and are emotionally impacted by the world around them. Um, we do it in context of them writing personal essays. So they have to kind of delve into their family history, where they're from, um, and really explore what you know, sort of land their families grew up on, what that physical space sort of has taught them about the world around them. Um, and I know you've written several essays about geographic place and how it can impact a person or people, um, particularly uh, your essay on Iowa and like the backwoods of Iowa, back roads and stuff in Iowa. Um, was really interesting. Could Do you mind just talking about that a little bit? I've always been, well, first of all, I'd never heard that phrase, emotional geography. I think that's really interesting. And it, and it does uh, resonate with me. Um, I've written a lot about um, connection to place. Um, and, and connection to place can be a weird thing when it comes to my upbringing in Iowa, I was raised in a medium-sized city, but in Iowa, you're always like five minutes away from the cornfields. And my dad grew up on a farm, um, maybe 40 minutes from where I grew up. And we would always drive back there and become immersed in, in my, my dad's childhood world, um, which was in, intensely evocative for him. And he started toward the end of his life writing these short little essays. Um, a few of them he showed me and many more I just found on his computer after he died. And he would write about the, the smell of, of hay on the farm where he grew up and how whenever he smells it, he doesn't know whether to be happy or sad. So it brings back these emotions of, of being kind of lonely as a kid. Um, most of his sisters were a lot older than him. His dad died when he was just nine months old. And so the landscape is really, um, it means that to him, but it also means kind of going back. And it means the stories from his 
family, which on both sides of his family, they're Irish immigrants and just lots and lots of family members around and lots of storytelling and all of it kind of contained by this landscape. When I was a kid, uh, <laughs> I, I always think of myself as being not really an outdoor person, much more of an indoor person. And so sort of pandemic prepared, you know, my lifestyle is, is, is not to like go, go hike or, um, you know, tube on the, on the James, you know, I just, I get completely sunburnt or whatever. And so as a kid, I was always intimidated by that landscape and really wondered how I would have survived on a farm as a kid. And I worked in the cornfields for a number of summers, uh, but I, but I hated it. I hated every minute of it, but I began to develop my own kind of relationship, which was a kind of alienation relationship, you know, but it, in a way it was no less intense and no less evocative. When I was in grad school, I happened upon a Middle Eastern writer and I was thinking of him, uh, Stephen, when you brought up Palestine and the importance of stories and stuff. He, his name was Anthony Shamas and he wrote an essay on a place called Palestine, Michigan. And in this essay, he coined a term called autocartography. And that's what I, what I first thought of when you brought up this idea of emotional geography, autocartography. And I, I wrote a, a family history and in the family history, I, I quote Shamus who says, and, and I was thinking about this because I was both thinking about my family in terms of this little plot of land that they settled in Iowa, having come from Ireland uh, during the potato famine in 1847. But then going back to the actual place in Ireland where my family had been since the late 1500s, early 1600s, and they're still there. Um, and so just in the last couple of years, I went to that place for the first time. And it feels like these two places are like two poles in my world, you know, and in the stories I tell. And they're kind of at tension because one, the place in Ireland just kind of exists almost totally in my head. And I, and I put all this stuff on it. And then the other one is, is where I grew up. And so Shamus writes that there is a difference between going back and going home. And here I'm quoting, he says, the difference being as simple as this, you go back to some place where you have lived in the past, but you go home to a place that even though you may have never seen it in your life, still it's as if you had. It's a place that is the other deep end of that pool of your created, acquired, and invented memories. In that sense, the landscape is not unlike an object. It's just more context to it. Maybe it's, a, you know, but, but it really is a, a place that 
you inhabit, whether physically or um, emotionally, and you you impose on it all this stuff that you know somebody else might have a completely different relationship to it. And uh, I just found I found that to be really moving, and it and it really uh, spoke a lot to my own experience. I, yeah, I, I, I love that quote. I think that it's so perfect because like you said, the landscape that we live in does become an object in and of itself and that it has that fluidity. Um, and that also kind of going back to what we talked about originally, um, we sort of use these things to help us make sense of our world and we impose these beliefs on them and these ideas about them. I, I do some very, just for like my own self, some like as part of like a, a therapy practice, some creative writing. And it's always about my, um, where my family grew up in Duplin County, North Carolina. I mean, and I've never lived there, but, but that's like where all of any creative writing that I do, it all goes back to there. And I've been there and, you know, I've visited many times, but I mean, it's this mythical place, you know, when I write about it and it's because it is whatever I need it to be, you know, in those moments. And that's kind of the beauty of storytelling. Um, whether you're in the classroom or whether you're just reading for pleasure and, or telling stories yourself, I mean, it is whatever you need it to be in the moment. Um, and sometimes that can be illuminating because you don't realize what you need it to be as you're writing, as you're creating, or as you are dealing with objects and sort of like resonating with them in different ways. Um, Sometimes things like the monuments can tell you stories that you don't want to hear in moments when you need to hear them the most. Hey, going off what you guys were talking about with emotional geography, something I've done to target that, having students write historical fiction, uh, that they get the content, they have to be so specific, but then they can bring in the emotion of that particular place with the characters they construct. And I think that is another tool you can add to your teacher uh, you know, belt of how to engage your students and really get them to reflect deeper on a topic and, and have all of these feelings that we've been bringing up in this podcast because you know, we, we've been targeting a lot of different things. And you know, it, it's the aspiration, I think, of you know, not just myself as a teacher, but I feel all teachers that we want students to do the same, that we want people to be able to connect in this manner. Well, thank you both so much for being on this episode. I enjoyed this conversation so much. Uh, once again, 
we have I've I've promised our our guests that we won't go for two hours and then here we are two hours in and I know that everybody is eager to get back to their lives but man this was fun um Brendan we look forward to sharing more about your books and other publications uh are there any projects that you're working on right now that you want to mention before we leave today and then where can people just find you in the world um I'm working on projects, but nothing that I can plug. Uh, but people can find me at, I sound like a politician, at brendanwolf.com. Okay, great. We'll vote for you next <laughs> next time around. <laughs> Steven, what about you? So I kind of live off the grid. Uh, I will provide my email if you are interested in reaching out, but I just like to get away from the screen as much as possible. Okay, and, and we love that about you, even though you taught exclusively online uh, during the first part of your career. So we love that. Well, thank you both so much again for speaking with me today. And listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. We'll see you next time on Content to Classroom. Yay!